بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم In the name of God the compassionate the merciful I seek assistance and guidance from God and at the beginning I have to admit that I am not able to do justice with the topic I just try to share with you some aspects of unity based on the Quran, on Islamic thought in general, and some of my personal reflections. And we would see how then the discussion, you know, would unfold. I've been, I've been reflecting on the issue of uh, unity seriously in the last, you know, couple of years. Although unity for us is very important principle of Islam, unity of God. But for me to think very seriously about unity of God in the way that should affect our relation with each other is something that in the last, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years, I'm more seriously thinking about it. I think there are many, many resources in Islam for unity. Some of them have not been noticed even by Muslims. Or if they are noticed, they are noticed for other purposes, but not that much from this perspective of uniting people. So, I was thinking for some time that when I get chance, maybe I write a book on unity, and this would have different chapters, and each chapter would be one Islamic notion that help us better understand the concept of unity. And this would have many, many chapters because there are many things in Islam about unity. And then I think then it can be a kind of philosophy for life, this approach to unity. So this is one of my projects for future. I don't know when I get chance to do that. But so I want to share with you first very quickly a list of some of the notions which can be some of them titles for those chapters. But then I will focus only on two, three of them. But I think it's maybe good I share with you a list of these topics. Uh, because maybe you find that one of these topics that I'm not going to talk about actually is more interesting for you than I can talk about that. I'm very happy to change you know, the way I speak. First of all, as you know, Muslims believe in unity of God. 
in Shia Islam, we say that we have three principles of religion, which means that every religious person in Abrahamic tradition, you know, believes in, and one of them is Tawheed, is unity of God, monotheism. So, to believe in one God, to believe in revelation and prophethood, and to believe in resurrection. So these three are three principles for us. And we Shia, in addition to these three, we have two more, and one is justice, divine justice, but also reflected as social justice and imamate which is the need for divinely appointed leadership so these are five principles when it comes to unity of god unfortunately many people they keep it just in the realm of theology and when I say theology, I mean Islamic theology, because in Christianity, theology embraces everything, but in Islam, theology is very a very specific type of discourse. So it means just those discussion about God, you know, so a kind of theosophy. Uh, so not that much emphasis has been put by some Muslim scholars to bring unity of God into different realms of Islamic thought but some have done so. For example, when we refer to the sayings of the Prophet and our Imams, we find that they believe unity of God not only is the core and foundation, it's in a sense the only thing that you need. For example, it is said that Prophet Muhammad used to say people, say there is no God but the one God, and then you would be happy. So he was not giving them a list of 10 or 20 or 100 things. It doesn't mean that we don't have any other things, but it means that if they accept this, then all other good things would follow. And sometimes I say to people that prophets have wisdom. They know that if there are hundreds of problems in society, which problems are the most important one, and they focus on those problems. And Prophet Muhammad, with the wisdom that he had, with the guidance that he received from God, he realized that in that society, in which there were lots of problems, lots of corruption, killing, looting, you know, idol worshipping, even burying their daughters alive, there were many, many problems. But he was able to identify the major problem, and that was lack of Tawheed, lack of unity of God in their thought and in their practice. We 
We have another hadith from our eighth Imam, Imam Raza, who is in Mashhad, buried in Mashhad in Iran. You know, he used to live in Medina, and the caliph of that time forced him to become his prince. And he was not accepting, but he said, you have to accept. He said, so I accept with the condition that I don't deal with any governmental affairs. I don't appoint anyone, I don't dismiss anyone, I don't take any job. Because he was very popular, so the caliph wanted to use his popularity. And then he asked him to go to Marv, which is now in Afghanistan, was at that time, you know, Eastern Iran. So anyway, when he was going to that area, in the city of Neishabur, it is now in Iran, 130 kilometers away from Mashhad, in the city of Neishabur, he was stopped by tens of thousands of people. Most of them were not Shia, but they loved him because he's a progeny of the Prophet. So they asked him for some hadith, some advice, and he said something that we know as golden chain hadith. Because he said, I heard this from my father, who is seventh imam, and my father from the father, the sixth imam, finally from prophet, prophet from Gabriel, and Gabriel from God. Kalimatu la ilaha illallah hasni. God said, the word of unity, la ilaha illallah, there is no God but Allah, is my fortress, like a castle fortress. Whoever enters my fortress would be saved from my punishment. So it's echoing the same thing that the Prophet used to say, which means that you don't need anything else next to or added to unity of God. Then Imam moved and then he stopped. And he said, But there are conditions for this. And I am one of the conditions. So it means that to believe in divinely appointed leadership is a condition for being loyal or faithful. Is a condition for Tawheed, but not something additional to Tawheed. So this is very, very important. We don't need to add anything to Tawheed. We don't need to add anything to unity. But unity brings many, many other things. There are many, many conditions for being committed to unity. But you don't need to bring anything to unity. Unity has to remain one. <laughs> so it's not one of many. It's just one. Anything comes under that. So in the same way that God is one, so the principle of unity is also one. Other things come under it. So, we find that 
if human beings fully understand the meaning of oneness of God, what is really oneness of God, then their life totally changes. But many times, because we don't understand the meaning of oneness of God, we take it just as a dogma in theology. I can believe in oneness of God and still have lots of problems. I can be a person who believes in oneness of God and be selfish. I can be a person who believes in oneness of God and be greedy. But if someone really, truly, sincerely believes in oneness of God, cannot suffer from selfishness or greediness and so on and so forth. It's impossible. So one of our great contemporary philosopher and mystics and exegetes of the Quran, Allah Tabatabai, you might have seen his grave uh, in the shrine of Lady Masuma. He has authored many books and a masterpiece is Al-Mizan Fi Tafsir Al-Quran. So he has 20 volumes uh, commentary on the Quran. Uh, which we believe is the best till now. He makes a very important point about the relation between Tawheed, unity of God, and morality. He says there have been different attitudes towards moral improvement. Some philosophers or some religious people have tried to encourage people to be moral by highlighting good outcomes or bad outcomes of the actions. So for example, if you tell lies, these are the bad outcomes. So you shouldn't tell lies in order to avoid the bad outcomes. If you are honest, these are the good outcomes, so you should be honest. So this is one approach. The other approach is to use reward and punishment. To say, if you do this, God will reward you. If you do this bad thing, you know, God will punish you. And he says, although the Quran uses both of these attitudes, but he says, as far as I know, the Quran has a unique approach, a third approach, and that is to base morality on unity of God. If you are a real monotheist, a real muwahhid, then all the vicious actions stop and all the vicious qualities would be removed. How can a person really believe in God as the only source of good, as the only source of success, and then be jealous? If you really understand what does it mean to be a believer in one God, then you would not be jealous, or you would not be fearful, or you would not be greedy. The reason we 
may have this problem is because we have not really committed ourselves to the truth and reality of unity of God. We just talk about it or believe in it in our mind, but don't live and practice unity of God. So, there are many things that can help us to understand <coughs> the emphasis on unity <coughs> in Islamic thought. I share only some of them very quickly, but then I focus on some of them. For example, when it comes to Islamic philosophy, normally, you know, in Islamic philosophy, we have two major sections. One is what we call al-ilahiyat bil-ma'na al-a'am. So we call it, you know, like theosophy in its broader sense. And that is where we talk about the predicates, the properties of being as being. And the last section is which is Theosophy in its narrowest event, we talk about God. So the first section is about being as being, being as such, which applies to God and applies to contingent beings like us. So in philosophy we talk about not about a specific being, we talk about being as being. So Muslim philosophers, especially Mullah Sadra, who is the founder of transcendent philosophy, and uh, you know he has many books on philosophy and on mysticism and on you know commentaries on the Quran and Hadith. He very clearly established that everything in this world enjoys the same reality because there was a big question and there is a big question in philosophy that where does multiplicity come you know we have human beings we have animals we have you know birds we have you know non-living beings we have angels we have so many things and we have god so how do you explain from a metaphysical point of view, this multiplicity, or this what we call al-kathra. For some people, the idea was that they have different realities. But Mullah Sadra, in transcendent philosophy, he argued that we only have one reality. And that is existence. And the difference is difference in intensity of existence. So, me as a human being, and an animal, and a plant, and a stone, and angels, all have the same reality, and that is existence but we have different degrees of existence. Therefore, the result is that what makes us similar is what makes us different. 
The same thing that makes us similar is this making us different. It makes us similar because we have the same reality. It makes us different because we have different degrees and intensity of that. So for him, existence comes as a hierarchy, as a ladder. So each of us is a finite, it's a limited being, but we have different degrees. But then we have God, who is absolute being. We are limited, he is absolute. So this perspective at the universe is very important perspective. Because this puts you in close and intimate relation with everything. And you don't differ in reality from each other. It's just a matter of degree. And when it comes to human beings, their degree can vary depending on what they do. And Mullah Sadra has the idea that human beings can be actually different in their species. All the horses are the same in the degree. They may look differently, but in the degree, in the intensity of being, they are the same. All the birds the same, you know, for example, from different types. But human beings can be totally different. So this is very important metaphysical approach to the issue of unity. But also, we have some notions that have been mentioned in the Quran, which are also discussed in some philosophies, like, for example, the notion of light, which has been used in the philosophy of Sohrawardi, you know, Illuminationist school of philosophy, which talks about different beings as different lights. And I think these two very much match each other, what he says and you know, what the Mullah Safra. The Quran says, and also Sohrawardi has tried to use this as the basis of his philosophy, that God is the light of the heavens and the earth. Allahu nuru samawati wal arth. The Quran also says, God created the skies and the earth, but also God made light and darkness. So there are two ways of explaining the creation. One is to say we have a sky, we have earth, we have different types of beings. Another way is to say we have light and darkness. And actually, after careful realization, uh, careful reflection, we realize that darkness is nothing except lesser degree of light. So we have only light, but a lesser light, less intensive light, compared to a higher light, is darkness. Okay? So we don't have absolute darkness. Absolute darkness doesn't exist. 
Anything created by God has light. But then we have different levels of light. So if we look at this, you see there are lots of moral, even I think, you know, political things can come out of this. If you believe that the whole world is light, but different levels of light. So the way you look at people then would be different because in everything you can see the light of God, but in certain things you can also see how they have turned away from God, they have created some darkness. So this is another concept. The other thing that we find in Islamic thought is that everything not only is a creation of God, but it's also a sign of God. Actually, it might be possible to argue that nothing exists unless there is a sign for understanding it. And maybe even we can say the, the reason why God created us is in order to be known. You know, there is a divine saying which says that I was a hidden treasure and I wanted to be known, so I created the people so that I would be known. So, to exist and to be known come together. So, everything is a sign of God. And the Quran says that you have external signs, everything around is a sign of God, and you have internal sign, which is your own reality, your own self, your own soul. Soon we will show them our signs in the horizons and in themselves. If we look at this, that everything is a creation of God and a sign of God, it means that then everything is somehow sacred. You know, sometimes I say, everything has a signature of God on it. If, if something has a signature of God on it, then can you disregard it? Can you destroy it? So, some Muslim, you know, mystics, they are very hesitant even to kill mosquitoes or insects, you know. He said that the late Imam Khomeini, when he was in Najaf, uh, you know, it was very hot and they had, you know, mosquitoes and flies, but he never killed mosquitoes. He just used to use his, you know, cloak to send them outside. There was a very pious scholar in Mashhad, Mirza Jawadara, and he said that once he was sitting in the court, the yard of his house. And then he wanted to go inside. Then they saw him returning. 
They asked him what happened. He said, I saw some ants on my dress. I'm going to the same place that I was sitting, leave them there so that they would not be displaced. Because for him, even an ant is significant. For you, if your father has many children, some of them are, I don't know, top scholars, top mystics, some of them are normal people. For you, all of them are important because these are father's children. You cannot say, I only love that child of my father who is the best. We have to love everyone. And actually, in Islamic spirituality, we have to think that every creature of God might be better than me. Even an insect can be better than me. There is a saying that God once asked Moses to bring with him the next time that he has appointment with God someone who is worse than him. So bring with you someone who is also worse than you. So Moses started looking around to find someone who is worse than him and take him, take him with him. For a person like Moses, who is spoken by God, who is a prophet, it might be natural to think that he's better than everyone, so everyone is worse than him. But this was not his understanding. So whenever he looked at everyone, he found, I cannot say they are worse than me, I cannot say I'm better than them. Then it is said, he found a very ill, bad-looking dog. Very ugly and bad-looking dog. And he said, I cannot take any human being and say they are worse than me. Maybe I can take this animal and say he's worse than me. But then he said, no, I cannot say even I am better than this. So he went to God and said, I couldn't find anyone worse than me. And God said, if you had brought that animal, you would have lost your position. So this approach gives you maximum respect to every sign of God. And you would not be able except to wish them good, to respect them, to love them. One of the contemporary Muslim scholars, who was a philosopher, who was a mystic, who was a poet, who has also translated the Quran and is very famous, uh, the late Elahi Qumshi'i, it is said that he sometimes used to look at a flower and cry. For him, a flower was reminding him of God. 
Of course, the beauty of flower is not comparable to the beauty of God, but a flower can act as a window through which you can see God. Therefore, we find here a very important concept. After sign of God, the concept of face of God, Vajhullah, face. God doesn't have body, so doesn't have hand or leg or face. But the Quran, and I think also in the Bible, also I think also we have this in Psalms, talks about face of God. What does it mean? For human beings, when we want to have maximum encounter, if I want to have maximum encounter with you, I should turn my face to your face. If I face this wall and you face this wall, and we speak with each other, this is not maximum encounter. Or if I look at you and you turn your face away, this is not maximum encounter. For human beings, if they want to have attention, they should turn their face towards what they want to attend to. And if they want to have encounter, it should be face to face. So face to face is the best encounter. Then the Quran says that if you want to have maximum encounter with God, there is no need to go around and find where God is facing so that you face his face. So I don't need to go to the east or to the west to find where is God and where he is looking at so that I go and try to face him and then have maximum encounter with him. The Quran says, Wherever you turn, face of God is there. You have to sort out your problem. If you want to find God, you can find him everywhere. And if you are not tuned towards God, and if you are not turning your face towards him, you cannot find him anywhere. So you can find God in holy sites, in the shrines, in the mosques, in the church. You can find God even in markets. You can find God you know, on the street. You can find God, find God everywhere if you want to find God. Of course, I'm not saying they are the same, but I'm saying it's possible to find God everywhere. But it's possible also to go to the holiest places and have no encounter with God. Not because God is not there, 
It's because you are not turning towards God. So we have this concept of turning your face toward God. And we have also this concept of seeking God's face. Seeking the face of your Lord. So now, who is a mystic? A mystic is not the one who knows God. This is not the definition. Many people know God. A mystic is not the one who knows God and loves God. No, it's more than this. A mystic is the one who is constantly able to see God. So nothing make him forget God. So he all the time is finding God facing him. This is the mystic. You know, we have a saying from Imam Ali alayhi salam, our first Imam. He says, Ma ra'aytu shay'an illa wa qad ra'aytullaha qablahu wa ba'dahu wa ma'ahu. I have not seen anything except that I have seen God before it, after it, and with it. So, if you have this approach, then in everything, in every person, in every moment, under any condition, we would be facing God. But this is not easy to achieve and not easy to maintain because there are so many distractions. Especially nowadays, you know, we live the world of distractions. Yeah? All different types of distractions, you know, not to forget, you know, these, you know, internet and, you know, mobiles, you know, SMS, all these things. So how a mystic can achieve and maintain this condition of being always tuned towards God, being always turning towards God, Nothing, you know, distracts him from God. For sure, this is not something easy, but this is possible. The Quran says there are people that neither business nor merchandise make them forget God. So I was thinking maybe this is a way that it can work. Maybe. First, we start with believing in God and worshiping God. Many believers remain at this stage. They believe in God and they worship God. They go to the places of worship. They do certain acts of worship. They pray, they fast, they give alms, whatever. 
But this is the minimum. The Quran says, Ma khalaqtul jinnah wal ins illa liyabudun. I have not created human beings, nor jinns. You know, jinns are a creature, a type of creature that have free will, but they are not intellectually as strong as human beings, but they have free will. So the kind of... Yeah. So this is not a gene in the sense of a human gene. This is different uh, creation. Yeah. Yeah. So I have not created human beings nor genes. Many people translate this or interpret it except to worship me. But I think this is not the best interpretation. It is true that in Arabic, Ibadah means worship. And Abada Ya'budu means to worship. Grammatically, can mean to worship me. But also it can mean to serve me. So, then this takes us to a new realm. We have the realm of the worshippers of God and we have the realm of servants of God. So, big difference between Abed and Abd. Abed is a worshipper. Abd is a servant. Of course, ser servant, not in the modern sense of you know, servant. Servant in its you know, theological sense. Someone who serves God. Actually, this misunderstanding can happen in many, many concepts. To take it as a verb or take it as a noun makes big difference. Even, you know, to be a faithful. There is a difference between to believe and being a believer. The big difference. It's not that everyone who believes in the Quranic sense is a believer. Mu'min, when it, it is used as a noun or adjective, is very much different from to say someone who has believed. You can believe in one minute, but to become a believer can take years. You can worship God immediately after, for example, you embrace faith. You can start worshiping God. But to reach the point that you can be a servant of God is something that even after many years you may not achieve. You know, when it comes to our way of understanding Prophet Muhammad, we say in our prayer, you know, in every prayer we say, Ashhadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu. I bear witness that Muhammad was a servant of God and a messenger of God. 
He was a servant of God in the way he believed, he practiced, he lived. And he was a messenger of God in the way that God rewarded him. He didn't make him Rasul, God made him Rasul, God made him messenger. But why God made him messenger? Because he was a servant. So we don't say, I bear witness that Muhammad was a worshipper of God. That's not a great achievement. We say, I bear witness that Muhammad was Abd, he was a servant of God. And we believe that this is the maximum achievement of a human being, and that is to become a servant of God. We cannot gain anything more than this, higher than this. We have a prayer that we say sometimes in our prayer, you know, when we go to prostration, in the last prostration of prayer, we say this from our Imam, first Imam. We say, Allahi kafa bi izzan an akuna laka abda wa kafa bi fakhran an takuna li rabba. O my Lord, it is sufficient for me as a matter of honor and dignity to be your servant. And it is sufficient for me as a matter of pride that you would be my Lord. You are what I love. It means you are my Lord. Please make me what you love. I am very happy with you. Please make me out in the way that you love. So, this shift from being a worshipper to a servant is a very big shift. And you cannot become a servant if you have ego. Because the Quran says that many people, they have their ego and in reality, instead of serving God, they serve their own ego. Have you seen the one who has taken his own wishes and desire as his Lord? So there are two types of idol worshippers. There are idol worshippers who very explicitly go and, you know, worship a statue. But there are many believers who are also idol worshippers, but the idol is inside them. They worship themselves. A very clear example is Satan. Satan was a worshipper of God. Very, you know, consistent. For 6,000 years, he worshipped God. To the extent that even some angels envied him. Even there is a saying, which is saying that, you know, when God said that he is going to test the angels by asking them to prostrate, you know, 
before Adam, they realized that one person is going to fail. So all the angels were worried. Maybe I'm going to be the one who is going to fail. So they used to go to Eblis and ask him to pray for them. Satan. And Satan used to tell them, don't worry, I pray for you. <laughs> and then he was himself the one who failed. So, you can worship God 6,000 years. And our first Imam, Imam Ali says, we don't know these years. He doesn't say we don't know. He says it's not known. It's not known. La yodra. Are these years of this world, worldly years, or words of the hereafter, which one day of it is 1,000 years? So, worshiping God can become a habit. And after some time, the difficulties go away, because habit, then you start enjoying worship. You, you worship God because you enjoy it. Not because you are serving God. And when God says, you know, do something else, say, no, I am enjoying my worship. There is a saying in the Hadith that when God said all the angels and also Satan because with them, not an angel, but because with them because of his worship, you should prostrate before Adam. Satan said, please exempt me from this. And I'm going to worship you in the way that no one has worshipped you. And God told him, do you want to worship me in the way that you choose? In the way that you like? So many of us, we gradually create a comfortable world for ourselves where we can keep our ego but pretend that we are servants of God. We are not servants of God. We are just worshiping God. So the same mentality of those who don't believe in God is the same mentality, but we think we are clever. We deceive God. We do our own selfish things, but then we ask God to reward us. God, you know, I'm doing this for your religion. I'm doing this for you. But in reality, it's all the same business that people who didn't believe in God were doing. But now we do it in the name of God, in the name of religion, in the name of a scripture, which is very destructive. So what we need to do is to start with worshiping God, but not to stop there to first try to do everything in order to please God. And this is different from worshiping God only. Because maybe pleasing God in this particular moment requires me 
not to go to mosque and helps someone on the street. Unfortunately, many times we deprive ourselves of great opportunities because we have focused and fixed our mind on something that we think we can find God in that, not knowing that great opportunities are coming on the side. For example, I many times thought about this when I was in Com. Say, I am driving to go to the shrine to pray and pay my visit. And I have very limited times. I have to be quick. So sometimes maybe I see a woman on the street waiting for someone to give a lift. Because in Iran it's very common, you know, we use also um, people's, you know, cars, you know, we give lift to each other. So if I am not a careful person, I would just ignore. If I'm a careful person, I would say, I wish I could help her, but God knows I'm in hurry. I have to go to pray and you know, come back. I don't have enough time. God knows. But if you are really alert, then you would say, maybe now, maybe, I'm not saying always, maybe now, I have to give up my idea of going to the shrine and just help her. Maybe this would be more pleasing to God. Sometimes people, you know, go to pilgrimage. Many, many times, although, you know, just once is enough, for example, to go to Mecca, once is enough. You know. It's good to go as often as you can, but sometimes maybe in my family, in my friends, in my community, there are people who don't have, you know, money, they are very poor, and if I help them, it would be more pleasing to God, but I still want to go to pilgrimage. So, we have to be very careful in doing everything seeking the pleasure of God or seeking the face of God. So, this is the second step. Then, if we keep doing this, I think then we reach a point that we would realize that I am a servant of God and my identity comes from God. This is a very important question. You know, if you ask someone, who are you? If he is a doctor, engineer, you know, coming from a very famous family, someone who thinks he has something to be proud of, when you ask him who you are to explain his identity, he would refer to that. For example, I am a doctor, I am a professor, I am an engineer, I come from this family. But if you ask a servant of the king, who you are. If he's a true servant, he says, I am servant of the king. 
He doesn't say, I am so-and-so, because for him, so-and-so is not important. I'm servant of the king. It means that my identity comes from my belonging to God. Although I have a name, that's not important. I have a job. I come from certain family. Those are not important. I am a servant of God. So if this comes to our mind, that we belong to God. So it's, I think, a higher stage than trying to please God. Because when you are trying to please God, still you might have a kind of understanding of being independent from God. You try to please Him, but then you reach the point that you tend to forget yourself and just think that you belong to God. So you become like an agent for God. And if you are an agent of God, and if you manage to get rid of your self, which is like a shell, then it's possible that easily you get united with others. As long as I am thinking of myself as a person, then I'm different from you. But if I forget my personhood, if I forget my own independent identity and try to get united in God and disappear in God, then there is no problem for me in being united with you. So a person who is selfless can easily get united with other selves. He has no problem. Maybe they have problem because they still have their self, you know, like a shell. But this person has no problem. Because each of us, you know, if we look at it from a philosophical perspective, each of us is like a container. Container doesn't have anything except it comes from God. So if you have, for example, water in these containers, water comes from God. What comes from me is the shape which brings limitation. Okay? I don't have water of myself. I am just limiting indeed. But I limited this size, you limited this size, I limited like a circle, you limited like triangle. We are only limiting in ourselves the grace of God. But if we manage to get rid of ourselves, then you will be connected to the ocean and you can easily get united with other people if they want. But you have no problem. You can easily get united to them. You can understand them, but maybe they don't want to understand you. They don't want to be with you, but that's not your problem. So, if a person really achieves this condition, then I think not only he would be always remembering God, he would be able also to remind people of God. Then this person becomes a godly person. You know, we have a hadith that 
Jesus' disciples ask him, Ya Nabi Allah, Man Nujalis, O Prophet of God, whom we should choose as our companions? And Jesus said, Man those who remind you of God when you look at them. When you look at them, they remind you of God. When you look at their actions, you would be more eager to work for your eternal journey. They increase your knowledge when they speak. So, a person not only is able to reach the point that he would never be distracted from God, indeed he can reach the point that he would help people to get rid of distraction and be reminded of God. And this is like a mirror that reflects the light of God. So I was thinking maybe this analogy would help. Some people make us busy with themselves. For example, maybe you see in me good qualities and then you keep thinking about me, you keep praising me and this can make you forget God. Some people, they say, please don't get stuck with me. God is there. So they act as a sign. They say, God is there. Some people are more purified. They look at them. You don't need to take the direction from them and go towards God. You look at them, but in them you see God. So you are not stuck with them, but in them you meet God and you remember God. And this is because they reflect the light of God. And this can reach the point that God makes them even like a lantern. So, every believer should be a mirror reflecting the light of God. But when it comes, for example, to prophets, they are themselves lantern. So, if we reach this point of at least trying to please God everywhere, at least, I'm not talking about the higher stages, but at least to be in a stage that we want to please God, we want to seek the face of God everywhere, we want to seek the pleasure of God everywhere, then I think we would be in a very situation, good situation, for unity with people. Because the main obstacle for unity with people 
mente, con gli altri, is ego. Il nostro ego, il nostro egoismo, il nostro io. That's, I think, the worst problem is ego. Questo è il problema fondamentale. And one of the worst types of ego exists in religious people. A person who doesn't believe in God, a person who doesn't, you know, for example, worship, his ego might come from his muscle. You know, he says, you know, I am very strong, you know, you have to give me everything. His ego may come from his political party. His ego may come because I come from a royal family. There is a limit for this. You know, how much you can demand from people because of your muscle or because of belonging to a party or you know noble family but a person who has ego and he misuses god there is no limit in what he can demand from people because then it's say that god is demanding you this he can demand even lives of people Uh, so people who have ego coming from muscle, uh, a person whose ego is misusing God, so he is hiding his ego behind God, then he is Uh, not limited in his demands. He can demand from you everything. Because it, it's God demanding you, it's not me. I can even take your life away from you. I can ask you to change your religion. Everything I can ask from you, because it's not me, it's God. So, ego is the problem, and ego of religious people, religious leaders, can be very dangerous, because they are misusing the name of God. It's like a person who is very knowledgeable and does mischief, compared to a person who is not knowledgeable. Yeah. A knowledgeable mischief maker can do more harm. Or, for example, a person who has light in his hand and comes for robbing your house, compared to a person who comes in darkness and doesn't see anything. So even knowledge, even light, anything good, if it is misused, can bring more harm. So, we have to work on removing ego from ourselves. And we should not think just because we are religious and we are worshiping God, we don't have ego. There is a great chance that actually in the same way that we are worshiping God, we are growing our ego. Maybe ego of an ayatollah or bishop is much more than the ego of a first-year seminarian. You cannot say because ayatollah is a bishop, you know, he has no ego. It can grow. So it's a 
constant struggle to make sure that we are not growing our ego through our faith and religiosity. Therefore, I emphasize again on trying to be always thinking of the pleasure of God, not my own pleasure, and trying to find the face of God everywhere, not what I am used to. Maybe for me it's much more easier to just meet my you know, Muslim friends, my only Shia friends, but is this what God you know, also would be happy with? That I only limit my contacts with my own people because it makes more comfort? Or maybe, you know, for example, I never want to leave the seminary. I want to be always in the seminary because I enjoy you know, my study. And, you know, but is this God one from me? So we have to be very alert about this issue that whether we want to please ourselves or we want to please God. And then there is a discussion that maybe I leave it for tomorrow about what is, in my understanding, the plan of God for guiding humanity. Why God has sent revelation and prophets and, you know, the way God wanted us to encounter revelation and the way we responded. So this is something that I leave it for uh, tomorrow and God willing we can discuss this tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.